Well, hello. Welcome to a very special episode of Endeavors. As I mentioned on the show a couple days ago, um, this week is my 10th anniversary of doing interviews. Uh, The podcast feed, the specific one that you're listening to, started in September of 2016. Um, I had another one that was a combined Radio 1 podcast before that, um, and then I was on community radio from uh, 2010 up until that point. So all in all, it's been 10 years. So although this feed only says 200 and something episodes, I've been doing this a lot longer. Um, But... (laughs) Given the shoddy audio quality of the interviews that went up last show, and I try not to make a big deal about these things, that it's 10 years, but there's a lot of things that have been happening lately, you know, whether it's the spot, getting on Spotify and getting all the feeds up and getting everything finally working, that I thought I should do something. And so I went into my archives um, and I picked out three of my favorite interviews from the 10 years that I've been doing this. Um, and I, I came up with what I think is a good mix. So it's three interviews today. Uh, that I believe are two are from 2015, uh, and one is from 2012. So the two from 2015 are going to be first, uh, Jill Hennessy. It was her second time on the show, and she's always been a favorite of mine. Um, Richard Dawkins, and then from 2012, Mark Marin. So, this is Endeavors, the 10th anniversary special. Enjoy. Listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McKeek. The first interview you're going to hear is with actress and musician Jill Hennessy. This is the second of two interviews I did with her. This one comes from 2015, uh, and in it she is promoting her second album uh, as well as the TV show, Madam Secretary. Here's me with Jill Hennessy. I am joined on the phone by actress, singer-songwriter, Jill Hennessy. Jill, hello. Welcome back, I should say. Wow, well, thanks for having me back. I'm shocked you would have me back after last time. <laughs> it's been we won't f- discuss that, though, right? It's, it's, yeah, I know. It's, well, you know. Four, four years ago, it's, it's, it's in the past. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. I'll, I'll be better this time, man, I promise. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, I remember last time I had you on, God, that was four years ago, uh, November 2011. And even back then, you, you were talking about your, your second album, and you were almost uh, ready to do it then. So, so what happened? Why did it take so long? <laughs> well, you're right. Most of the songs, you know, were finished by then. We'd, we'd uh, almost, com- I think we'd... Com- almost completed recording at that point. Uh, and we were just looking for a good time to release the album. And I kept getting, you know, various jobs. Uh, some were in Canada, some were uh, in the States, you know, various acting jobs. 
so we finally settled on this, this date of uh, you know October 5th of 2015, just thinking, oh, we're, we're free, we're in the clear. <laughs> and we can, you know, also we've got two kids, so we, we're basically our own little mom and pop kind of label where everything we do, including all the, the, the digital store and the website and all distribution stuff, you know, our, our nerve center is our kitchen table, man. And it's usually covered in kids' food and homework, and it's, it's insanity. Uh, so, of course, we, we decided to drop the album, I Do, October 5th of this year, and uh, then I get this job on Madam Secretary, which is a CBS show here in the States. And uh, so that, that was interesting. So, hey, I guess you just have to, to go for it. <laughs> we should have just yeah. released it anyway. I, uh, but but yeah. it's going well. You, you you mentioned your kids, and, and I read that for this album, you, you actually took uh, a lot of inspiration from them, especially for, for, from your older older son in terms of what should go on the album. Yeah, very much so. I mean, good job, by the way. Yeah, in fact, one of the tracks is uh, heavily based on an experience my, my older son had uh, at a school dance, which which floored me. And I, I, I can't even talk about it. I get a little verklempt. It's crazy. Anyway, um, but I, I had to go home and write this song. So he, he became sort of the foundation of, of Precious One. Um, and that there's little edge elements of uh, Amy Winehouse in that song and and other people sort of being waylaid and, and dealt these heavy blows by, I guess, critical words or prejudices of other people and and that was around the time I think that Amy passed away, and uh, it was just, it, she sort of edged in when I was started thinking about all the wonderful, incredible artistic people we've lost to things like drug addiction. And uh, so she, she's part of that. When so is my older older son. What you know? How what kind of music would would you say your your kids have have exposed you to over the last few years? Hmm, that's interesting. Um, Man, it's funny because my older son is really retro. Uh, I mean, he's heavily into Zeppelin, but he, he mixes Zeppelin with like Jay Z, with Macklemore, um, and then uh, he he loves Eminem too. I'm like, dude, you're going way back, bro. Um, but and then I I got him into the weekend. Nice. I'm like, you gotta listen to some Canadian music, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he loves Drake. Uh, my younger son is much more pop-oriented. I mean, he's deep into... Actually, he's really into the, the new Sam Smith track off the Spectre movie, uh, Writings on the Wall. Um, and they both love Adele. Uh, but what, I guess what my older son really reminded me of, um, he really brought me back to Radiohead, which has always been one of my favorite bands anyway. But uh, he just sort of made me revisit all these bands like Zeppelin, like Radiohead, and, and look at some of the melodic structures and, and just what, what makes those songs so anthemic, you know, so epic. Um, so I, I'd like to say I could build all my songs like that. That would be great. Um, but it, it, it does, it, it, it really does sort of resonate, you know, when you're, when you're writing and uh, performing. I think about that stuff. I, uh, I, I I had to listen to to a few of the tracks off the album. Um, what what str- what struck me, especially with with something like like the title track, I do, is that it it seems a little more, perhaps uh, maybe upbeat and and a little more uh, uh, you know rock based c- compared to c- compared to the, uh, the 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 previous album. W- would you agree with that? And and it, w- w- was that a conscious decision for you? 
Dan, that was very conscious, actually, and you hit it. You hit the nail on the head. That's exactly how I kind of went into the second album. I was thinking, you know what? I gotta be more upbeat. <laughs> I gotta. I think I've got to uh, lighten things up a wee tad. Um, and uh, so this album really is sort of, uh, I guess, the, the, the next the next footprint in the sand after Ghost in My Head, which was sort of about my my childhood and very autobiographical. And, and this one, I, I did want to lighten up. I wanted to. It's also about you know, you know, life after you know childhood, and uh, I did want to focus more on, on more rock rhythms. I wanted the whole album to focus more on rhythms, on, on bass and, and drums, uh, and, and rhythm lines, um, and also yeah, more pace, more uh, sense of uh, melodic lightness, um, and, and a little more on harder edges, you know, and that's why we got. Uh, a friend of ours named Sean Bevan, um, who's, who worked, worked with Marilyn Manson and uh, Guns N' Roses, he, he mixed the album. And that was one of the, I guess, one of the, the directives I gave him was, you know, dude, go for the hard edge. Go, You know, if you got a choice when you're mixing this, bro, just just go for the, the harder edge. Um, so you're, you're, you were very astute in, in feeling that way, by the way. Uh, speaking of uh, edge, one of the songs that I really like, I think just in terms of, of of how it sounds, because I, I feel it's maybe a, a little bit different than the other things on the album, is uh, Something's Coming. Um, yes. What, yeah. what, what can you tell us about that song? Okay, yeah, well, that was that, interesting you bring that one up, because the real focus on that one was groove, was rhythm. Um, and uh, and I did want to make something that was a little more hooky. You know, they had something where you'd listen to it once and, and just walk away humming that, that groove feeling and wanting to move. Um, and that one is... Uh, combination of <laughs> I recorded that the demo for that actually in Sean's garage um, and uh, I guess when I first recorded that demo I, I said look bro I'm kind of looking for this sort of New Orleans swamp funeral procession vibe you know sort of a dark tone under this this pulsating groove sort of a a blues R&B gospel kind of thing little edges there and here and there um, and that one was just, I, I didn't want to make it so specific. I wanted it to be more general in terms of the lyrics. Um, and, and yet positive, like something, how can I say it's so easy to be dark about so much of the stuff that's going on that you read in the news that you see in front of your face in the streets every day. Um, and just wanting to believe that something better is coming, that, that, that we can, if we we actually just open our eyes and look at what whatever pain our neighbors going through, our friends, or somebody on the street is going through. Maybe we can actually help each other. I don't know. It, 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 it was me trying to be very positive. <laughs> I ended up writing this really dark, swampy song. But that's sort of what the, the lyric lyrical intent was. Uh, we we of course we we alluded there to go, Ghost in My Head, which was your first album. And if and if there's one if there's one song on I Do that reminds me of of Ghost in My Head. I think it has to be Edmonton. Um, oh, okay. And, and, and in true Canadian style, you wrote a song about, your, about a, a city and, and, and specifically your, your hometown. Um, where, 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 what was the inspiration for, for, for doing that? Um, good question, man. Uh, I had wanted to write a song about my grandmother, Anne, for some time. And uh, I, I was born in Edmonton, but I never really lived there. We... Uh, my twin sister and I were three months old when my parents moved. I think we moved to uh, to Calgary, 
Uh, oh, no, sorry, Cranbrook, B.C., and then Calgary after that. Uh, and as children, we moved every two years, so we, we were uprooted quite a bit. Um, but my grandmother, we'd go visit her during the holidays a lot, and she was just just this force to be reckoned with. She was Ukrainian. She um, was incredibly powerful. I remember her being this huge, strong woman, and she was definitely the, the, the ruler of the household. And would get up at five in the morning to make pierogies, and sometimes I'd go and help her roll out the dough and spoon in the fillings and stuff and pinch the edges. And, and I have just really fond memories about her, but also as an adult, recollecting some of the stories she told us about her childhood and things that happened to her as a Ukrainian-speaking 12-year-old being put into kindergarten and uh, the anti-Ukrainian sentiment that, that was very prevalent at that time when she was a little girl. Uh, and what she went through is as an immigrant, um, even though it was she her it was her parents who emigrated to to Canada, but she was raised in a ukrainian speaking farming camp south of Edmonton, so when she was twelve, they moved to to Edmonton and she was put in the public school system but she uh some kid called her a very uh, a very negative name a derogatory term that was used towards Ukrainians at the time, and she threw a rock at this kid and she was thrown out of school and i don 't think she ever went back. Um, and she later went on to, you know, various jobs, cooking for lumber camps or farming camps. And uh, so for years I thought, I've got to write a song about Grandma Ann. And then uh, I got a spot at the Edmonton Folk Festival. Gosh, I guess that was like four years ago. And uh, I thought, okay, I've just got to, <laughs> you know, put pen to paper and write about Grandma Ann. And, and so I did, and that's, that's what, what came of that the song Edmonton. G- given what you ju- just told me about about your 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 grandma and and her immigrant history, what do you what what do you make of of the current uh, dialogue and and discussion that's being had both in in the U.S. and and here in Canada about uh, the, the the immigration issue? Yeah, it's, and obviously it's a very hot button issue all all over the world now, especially with the crisis uh, in the Middle East and such. Um, um, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, I, I was so excited to see uh, Prime Minister Trudeau <laughs> and, and his reception of, of uh, Syrian refugees recently. And uh, just the way he shook people's hands and said, welcome home. Um, that I don't know, it just it, it gave me chills and it, I was so thrilled and, and warmed to the core to, to see that. Um, and it's interesting that as human beings, we I think we're all immigrants. I mean, <laughs> unless you're you're you know Native Canadian, Native American. I mean, you know, we've we've all at some point come from somewhere else, and and our ancestors had to were either trying to escape something, um, or they were brought here in chains, or uh, they came here with uh, with nothing, or they came with privilege. You know, it's it's uh, but it, it takes so much courage to to take a chance and risk everything to start a new life and jump into a place that you know nothing about, where you probably don't speak the language, where your skin color might not be the same as everybody else's. Um, I, I, I'm kind of blown away by that kind of courage. And uh, that's kind of why I really wanted to write that song, too. And I, I, I even wrote the, the rhythm line, the melody, as a, a pub song, so people could, like, raise a glass of beer and sort of wave it in the air. Um, but as an homage to, to the courage it takes to, to 
basically leave everything that you're comfortable with, that you've known, or maybe that you're terrified of, and but also go, go into the unknown yeah. uh, to create a better life for your family or yourself, for your future generations. That, that's, that's what truly uh, impresses me, so... And uh, on, you know, on that note, you mentioned that you that you moved around a lot as 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 a child, and I'm curious, uh, you know, how how that affected you at the time, and 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 where you think that that led you, and how that inspired you c- creatively. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's funny as a, as a kid. You know, I remember like the fourth time we moved, uh, being very upset. You know, when my mother told me, "Okay, we're going to move again." And I said, no, we can't. We already moved four times. I remember uh, at the age of eight saying that to my mom. And, you know, it, in the moment, you know, it's frustrating, and you, you never get that core group of friends that, you know, a lot of people talk about having, like, oh, I'm seeing my high school friends. I'm seeing my, my friends from elementary school. And, I, it, you know, I've never really had that. And yet, one thing I've, I have discovered living in nine different cities across Canada is how wonderful it was to get to know so many different cultures, so many different, beautiful, uh, sublime parts of Canada, each with its own, you know, distinguishing characteristics. And, you know, going to the beach in Vancouver on Sundays to watch the, you know, the the orcas swimming with a big box of donuts. You know, I looked forward to that every week. Um, Or, you know, whether it was Calgary and watching the Stampede, um, and meeting people and learning how to adapt or learning how to be an empathetic human being, learning how to listen. Um, so I, I think I, I, I'd like to think I learned a lot of those traits just from from traveling so much and, and meeting such a huge variety of, of people from different backgrounds. Uh, you, you mentioned off the top that you're uh, shooting Madam Secretary now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, and you you alluded to to politics there earlier, and what once again you're you're sort of playing a a character that's in, in related to politics in in some way. You know, you you had you, yeah. had, you had Claire and <laughs> you had Claire in Law and Order, and now you have your your uh, your defense intelligence character here uh, in, in in Madam Secretary. What uh, what first attracted you to this role? I I know I read that you said you were a disciple of uh, of Teo Leone. That I was what? I'm sorry? I, I, th- I think I read an article where it quoted you as saying you were a disciple of, of, of Teo oh. Leone. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. I, I actually, well, I've, I've adored her from afar for many years. And uh, I actually had the, the fortune of working with her on a, a, a comedy series she did years ago called Flying Blind. It was one of the first jobs I ever got. It was a half-hour sitcom. And... Uh, so I got to work with her on <laughs> on a sitcom, which was great. And I just remember her being one of the most beautiful women I'd ever seen, and uh, it being so just just really cool and down to earth on set. Uh, and I, so I, I followed her career, you know, since then. And then I was I was offered this, um, and it was you know thrilled to to be working on the same show with her. I actually worked mainly with with Tim Daly's character, who plays uh, her husband on the show. Um, but it's, it's, it's fascinating because I do, I love watching political drama. I, to be honest, I mainly watch the news. I, I really watch things that are scripted and I get a little nervous about watching anything that I'm in. Um, 
but uh, it's fascinating to see how these people structure these shows. And it's always, it's always weird to play characters whose political beliefs you might be at odds with. But that's, I guess that's kind of what's amazing about acting and challenging about it at the same time. Um, that you, you basically take on these completely different POVs and you just go for it. You jump off a cliff. But on, on that note, do you think that acting is inherently a political profession? Because yeah, interesting. Because, because like, I think to some extent, it's interesting you ask that question. Uh, you, I would assume you'd have to be uh, rather adept at acting to be a good politician. Um, I could be wrong, but <laughs> this is an assumption I'm making. Um, but I, I can't help but think that it would help. Um, there's a lot of I think there's a lot of similarities there. Uh, now, of course, uh, you know you're you're on a show and you're on uh, and you've got an album out. What? How do you how do you go about balancing the 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 two mediums in in, in which you work in? Uh, well, it's literally it's just it comes down to scheduling um, because you know one doesn't take away from the other unless you know there's a, a scheduling conflict. And what's great about Madam Secretary too is that I'm a recurring character, so basically they give me you know, a month's notice about the times they might need me. I look at my schedule. For example, in January, I'm doing a whole bunch of shows. I think I've got seven shows. Um, so at least I can go back to them and, and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm booked this date, this date. And uh, they'll, you know, try to arrange a schedule to, to make it work with me. And then I'll, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of juggling, but it's totally manageable and kind of exciting. And the, the executive producer of Madam Secretary is a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, and she's actually a singer-songwriter herself, which is interesting. And I did not know that when I got the part. Uh, so she's great. I mean, she, she gets it. She's a brilliant, brilliant writer. Um, and uh, I, I love that we have sort of similar taste in music, so that helps. You just picked up on something, uh, Bruce Springsteen, and I just recently saw a clip of you on YouTube uh, playing a Springsteen song. I think it was for the concert for Hurricane Sandy or something like that. Oh, it was a, it was No Surrender at the Strand Theater? Yes. Yeah, where I, I, I referenced, because uh, I did do a, a concert for Hurricane Sandy Relief in Seabright, New Jersey, and uh, where I also played No Surrender. So I was referencing that concert before that, uh, that show, too. But I love that song, man. And it's just, it's always, it, it always feels so relevant and, and appropriate, you know, what do you, inspirational. Why do you think there are so many actors and, and so many singers and, and songwriters who are adept at, at crossing over in, in, into the other medium? Why do I think that? Um, I, don't, I think it, it, books, uh, singing, songwriting, acting... It's all, it's all about telling a story, I think. Um, and I think the more personal you make it, the more universal it's going to be, or universally tangible and relatable. Um, so I, in a sense, I think it's all, like when people say, you know, oh, what do you like better, acting or, or singing or songwriting? I, it's weird. I don't really separate the two in some ways. Uh, like with my singing and songwriting, I, I get to write my own material, which is great, but oftentimes I'm covering other people's material, which is just like acting other people's words. Um, so 
in a sense, you're always personalizing it. Um, and it's, I think from the, the dawn of time, human beings have always loved to tell and to listen to a great story. Uh, on, on that note, you, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, one of your first jobs was, was with Taya on the sitcom. Um, mm-hmm. But I happen to know that you actually used your singing, if I'm correct, to get one of your very, very first jobs. And I'm curious how you think your life would be different if you never went to New York to audition for Buddy Holly? <laughs> Good question, man. Um, oh, I think it'd be very different. You know what? I might not have. I might not have come to New York. It was literally that that show, the Buddy Holly story, that took me uh, from Toronto to San Francisco and then to New York, and and that's where I subsequently found my my first agent, or first American agent, and started getting. I guess that's when I got Law and Order. Um. So I, I think things would have been very, very different. Um, I'm not even sure <laughs> what I would have done. I might have actually gone to U of T, you know, to study journalism or fine arts. Um, I'm not even sure. But at that point, things sort of started to get pushed by this wave that kept going and going and going. And now I'm speaking to you from uh, from my apartment in New York City. Uh, pretty bizarre. I read, uh, I think I, I saw that you ha- you said you had what, like something like seven shows uh, coming up next year. But I read that you, are you involved in a couple movies coming up? I think I read that, The Other and and Confidential. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure when those are even scheduled for release, but um, those are two independent films I shot last year. Um, and uh, another two reasons to delay the release of the album as well. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure when they're coming out, but yeah, the, we've got... I guess seven, you know, music performances um, through January and February. Um, I guess that'd be nine. But we're uh, I'm opening for the Indigo Girls at the end of January, which I'm so psyched about. Um, and then we're playing this Light of Day festival that uh, Bruce Springsteen usually headlines, um, which uh, uh, Michael J. Fox's foundation organized, uh, basically to uh, to raise money for free research into Parkinson's disease and and. Uh, uh, and nervous system disorders, and they've got this huge amount of like amazing acts scheduled. I think there's like 50 bands playing in a week, so I'm just psyched to hang out, like, hang out in the, the musicians' yeah. tent. Like, hey, how's it going? Um, do you have any extra guitar picks? Oh, I'm a big fan. You know, <laughs> create some bizarre conversation with musicians I, I I adore from afar. How does it feel to play with the Indigo Girls again? Because I know you, I know you used to do it when you were younger. I had a I had a chance to speak with Amy Ray a couple years ago, and I found her just delightful. Oh, isn't she great? Uh, they're both awesome, Amy and Emily, um, and they really make a point of reaching out and uh, supporting other artists, new artists, you know, friends of theirs, friend and not friend. I mean, people, any anybody that. They, they relate to, and they're just incredibly generous human beings and so, so incredibly talented. Um, but yeah, I, I opened for them, gosh, uh, I guess that was like around four years ago, too, when I met them at Mountain Stage, and uh, I was introduced to them. They were the headlining act at Mountain Stage in West Virginia, and I'd mentioned that I, I had sung a lot of their music on the streets of Toronto and New York, and they said, oh, would you want to come up and sing the encore? We're thinking of doing Closer to Fine and Galileo. And I said, I just happened to know those. <laughs> and so that, that's what started that. And then they, they called me up to mention that they were uh, going to play in New Jersey in a, a, couple, a couple venues. 
and would I want to, you know, come up and sing an encore? And I said, yeah, of course. So we so I sang with them a few times out in, in Jersey as well. So we're, we're going to do it again on this tour. No, I wasn't sure if it was if it was when you were singing those songs, but I, I, I read years ago, and I don't know if this is just internet rumor, but for a while you had a, a, a reputation of performing barefoot on stage? Um, yeah, when I was performing with a band oh, okay. uh, uh, here in New York. Uh, called the New Originals. Uh, yes, an homage to Spinal Tap there. And uh, the the drummer was always playing uh, like either a bongo or uh, conga drum. And a lot of the venues we tended to play had hollow stages. And I tend to tap my foot quite a bit, and which is how I've always sort of kept rhythm. Or to be honest, when I'm it's just me playing guitar, I sort of use that as as a little percussive element, you know, especially if I'm on something that's kind of hollow, because uh, he's as a singer-songwriter, guitarist, you, and with no band behind you, you have to uh, sort of fill in for bass and drums. But it was distracting to the drummer. He said, Julia, your boots are too heavy, man. It's making too much noise. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'll take off. So I, w- I would take off my shoes when I perform with these guys. Uh, you, you you mentioned, you know, concerts and venues. Are you going to come to Canada or to, to Vancouver anytime soon? Uh, I'm hoping to. We've already come up to Toronto a few times since October. Um, but I'm hoping to get out to Vancouver, you know, sooner than later. So hopefully, um, like, after the new year, um, I would hope for around springtime or something. Because I just miss Vancouver so much, man. And my kids have never seen it. And that, that kind of bothers me. Um, I'd like I'd love to take them to Stanley Park, and it, I just—it's just Vancouver is such a great music scene. And you know, the last time I was there, I was working on a Canadian independent film. And uh, yes, it, that was the because there were so many great you know opportunities and, and venues uh, to play at. And uh, I've got to get back here ASAP and, and organize some shows. So I think now's kind of the time. So I, nothing's on the books yet, but I will let you know. Uh, it's funny you mention that because I, I believe last time we talked, you had just finish uh, shooting a move out here in uh, in, in Langley. Um, yes, in Langley. Very good. Yes. Good memory. <laughs> um, uh, out, out of all the songs you you have on, I do. If 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 you had to pick a favorite, could you pick one? Oh, that's, oh, that's tough, man. <laughs> um, because I, I like so many of them for completely different reasons. Like I, I usually go to to Edmonton because uh, it's kind of emotional for me. And then, uh, but then there's uh, something like Real, um, which is uh, closer to the end of the the disc. It's um, and, and and there's lines in that that I just it's, uh, some of the lyrics I just love love to say i love the story behind it and uh it's sort of nice you know singing these songs because it reminds me of why i was inspired to write them in the first place and the people that that i love and and that inspired me um i I feel like i get to make contact with them again just by by singing their song you know um and and marcia g too that's about a woman that i I really loved who was a tremendous mother and friend and who, who loved to sing with me and helped me out a great deal and and she she passed away uh, about five years ago, I guess. And uh, and again, through, through singing these songs, I, I get to sort of make contact with with all these people again. So I, I, I'm sorry, it's such a rambling answer to your question. 
Uh, well, yeah, I guess it's okay. I, Marcia G. <laughs> I, I I ask that question all the time, and no artist can very rarely can they just hone in on 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 one song. Um, yeah. I guess I'll go with Edmonton. Let's say Edmonton. All right. Well, the well the album is is I do. Uh, I I really enjoyed it. I encourage all our listeners to check it out. Jill, I hope we don't wait uh, another four years to talk, or 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 another four years, or another <laughs> four years to. Sooner, to uh, man. Dan, please, I'll call you. All right. Uh, or you know, or or another four years for for, for your next album. Um, but yeah, uh, I agree. I, I do's out now. Ch- uh, also check out uh, Madam Secretary on uh, CBS. Um, CBS, I think it's global in Canada. Yes, I I, I believe you're right on that. Um, Jill, thanks so much. I, I I I've been super excited for this interview for a while now. Oh, did, by the way, you're amazing, and I, you you I don't know. You made me smile. Yeah, you made me very very happy today. And uh, oh, thank you great research and i'm just thrilled you you remember me so well too that was it's really sweet all right well uh let me know if you uh, ever come to vancouver um will do hopefully soon man seriously i'm not not kidding you about that i miss it <laughs> i want my kids to be there hey, well, well i'm sure uh, i'm sure vancouver misses you too okay darling well hopefully i'll see you running in stanley park all righty jill take care okay take care Bye-bye. bye next up is renowned scientist and evolutionary biologist, uh, new atheist, one of the four horsemen of atheism, and author of The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins. This is also from 2015, uh, and in this case, he was promoting part two of his memoir, Brief Candle in the Wind. This is my conversation with Richard Dawkins. I am joined now by evolutionary biologist and author Richard Dawkins. Richard, hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. So your new memoir is Brief Candle in the Dark. It's part two of your memoirs. What, what motivated you to, to write your memoirs in the first place? Well, I was getting on a bit. I reached my 70s and uh, my mother was going strong and I thought it would be good to consult her. She has a very good memory and I used her diaries of my early childhood. Uh, That was in volume one, actually, um, An Appetite for Wonder. And it was originally supposed to be just one volume, but I, when I got halfway through, I decided I needed a bit of a break. And I wanted part two of my life to be really done a bit differently, not done chronologically, but done thematically. And so I asked the publishers if they'd mind splitting it in two, and they didn't. Uh, all except the German ones who wanted it to stay in one. Um, and Brief Candle in the Dark is volume two, volume one having been published in 2013. And and in Brief Candle, it's definitely, I guess, less structured and, and more science-based, I, I, I would say, in terms of what you're talking about. Why why did why did you decide to, to jump around back and forth like that a little bit? In volume one, it was clearly a good idea to do it chronologically. Childhood works like that. You're getting older all the time. You're changing all the time. Chronology makes sense. In volume two, I didn't think chronology made sense, really, because what happened next is not necessarily very interesting. Sometimes it's too interesting. And I thought it better to divide it thematically so that there is some science in it. But there is in volume one as well. Um, There's a chapter on television. There's a chapter on debates. There's a chapter on travel. Uh, chapter on various other things. It's, so it's thematic rather than chronological. 
what I found interesting is that in in sort of contrast to 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 the your perceived public persona, you you come across as quite maybe timid, so to speak, um, both how about how you talk and just the your work. Did was that given that that aspect of your personality? Did that make it harder for you to to, to look back at your life and and write about it with such force? <laughs> Well, maybe the public persona that you speak of is simply wrong. Maybe the persona in the autobiography is the correct one. Yeah. No, that's, 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 that's fair enough. Um, so on, on that note, uh, how, then how, how, how did you adjust initially to, to becoming a quote-unquote celebrity first after The Selfish Gene and then a, a different kind of celebrity after The God Delusion was published? Yes, I don't think of myself as that much of a celebrity. I mean, I, you know, I don't get sort of stopped in the street all the time or anything like that. Um, so there's not that much of a difference. And such as it was, it came on gradually. So, uh, you know, it didn't require a great deal of adjustment. One of the one of the passages I really enjoyed in, in Brief Candle was when you're talking about um, the supernatural and, and, and skepticism. How how would you describe supernatural belief? Is it simply anything that can't be explained by science? Yes, it's an interesting question because um, I, I'm actually not clear that supernatural means anything at all, except as you say that which can't be explained by science yet. If you think back to the Middle Ages, almost everything that is familiar to us today, computers, cars, planes, uh, telephones, would have seemed supernatural to them. And I dare say that the developments, technological developments of the future will seem, would seem supernatural to us. So I think that to, to invoke the supernatural to explain anything is a kind of cowardice, a kind of cop-out. What we should be saying is, here's something we don't yet understand, but we're working on it. Is it, is it sort of the same as saying, is describing something or, or someone as alien because we don't know what it is? Yes, I suppose it is. I mean, if you use the word alien to mean hypothetical visitors from outer space, that's an interesting question, and presumably they would seem very alien to us. Um, but yes, I think you're probably right. So on, on that note, though, do you think there are certain ideas or, or certain theories that maybe will never be or can never be explained by science or reason? Well, that's a very interesting question. There could be. It could be that there are really deep problems which are not beyond science itself, but beyond the human brain to encompass and uh, I don't know what I think about that. I mean, there are some physicists who think that potentially they can explain everything. On the other hand, I, it's pretty remarkable how much we already can understand, given that our brains were shaped to survive on the African savanna, hunting and gathering. Uh, the fact that those very same brains, without any change at all genetically, can understand quantum theory and relativity and evolution is a pretty much of a tribute to our species. And so it seems to me an open-ended question how much more we might be able to understand and whether there are some problems so deep that we can never understand them. 
One of the other passages I really enjoyed was when you talked about going to Galapagos uh, for the first time, which is, of course, where, where, where Darwin um, studied his, his finches. What was that experience like for you, visiting that, that haven on Earth for, for the first time? Well, it was amazing. Uh, I mean, actually, the, the impact it had on Darwin is a bit exaggerated. Uh, Darwin was a great naturalist, but he didn't really put it together until he got back to England afterwards. He did sort of notice that, that something about the Galapagos fauna looked as though uh, a species from the mainland had been taken. He said it's almost as though a species from the mainland had been taken and modified. Uh, so that there was a sort of inkling there. But I was immensely struck by Galapagos, the, the enormous number of animals, the tameness of them, the fact that you can get close to them, you can touch them. You're not allowed to touch them, but you could if you wanted to. You have to step over the iguanas. Um, they don't get out of your way. The same goes for the boobies. Um, it, it, it is an astonishing experience. Um, and so in, in the last... 30 years or so, you've started to dabble in... in... Is that, that's not my phone, is it? No, let me just... Sorry, okay. it's my studio phone. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, in the last 30 years or so, you've, you've dabbled in, in television documentaries. Yes. And, and what are your thoughts now on how science is being portrayed in, in pop culture and the media, both in a, in a, in a documentary sense and in more of a, a fiction sci-fi sense? I think there are some very good science documentaries. I think uh, David Attenborough is peerless and, and, and wonderful. Um, I'm not so enamored of some of the others. Um, sci-fi, I don't watch very many science fiction films. I've read a certain number of science fiction novels. I do value science fiction. I think that science fiction can open the mind, uh, can get you to think scientifically. I think that um, I've actually had my scientific mind opened by science fiction, more by books than by films. I would like to see television treating science more sympathetically. I'd like to see scientists portrayed on television, perhaps in soap operas and dramas, as sympathetic characters, as characters who are human, but have something really interesting to say and do. And I've been, a, to a certain extent, involved in trying to persuade Hollywood to uh, take science more seriously and give it more humanity. But on, on that note, I mean, do you feel that, I don't know, within the last 10, 15 years, essentially since, since the, the Bush era, that science has become more of a political hot-button issue than it, maybe it should be? I'm not sure about that. Um, I think there's a certain amount of hostility to science, which is unfortunate. That may be just a part of hostility towards intellectualism generally. But I'm not much of a, a voyeur of the, of the social scene, actually. I'm not very good at that kind of thing. Uh, now, you, you, write around, you write that around the, the time your book The God Delusion came out, uh, the term new atheist was coined and, and you sort of became willingly or unwillingly a, a, a part of that group with uh, Harris and Hitch and, and, and Dennett. Do you Im Im embrace that label or sort of embrace being thrust into that group at all? I don't mind it. I don't think there's anything very new about it. I mean, there's nothing much that Bertrand Russell didn't say. 
I suppose uh, we did have a certain impact. The four of us wrote books at around the same time, and it did seem to hit a nerve. Um, the book sold very well. The God Delusion has now sold three million copies. And so, to some extent, the phrase new can be justified. But on that note, it seems like after that book came out, you sort of became more of, of a figure, the, an anti-religious secular figure than you did for, for your work on, on science. How did that feel to you? Well, I, I suppose the God delusion did initiate that, and uh, I've, I've always been non-religious, and you can tell that from really all of my books, but uh, the God delusion was a bit of a departure for me, I suppose, and I, I followed that up by, um, by journalism and broadcast and that kind of thing, television too. When you, when you, when you first got into television, you, you, you sort of described yourself as you know, reluctant and, 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 and timid. How do you, how do you, how did you make that transition? What was it <laughs> well, seamless just, for yes. you? Yeah, I, I described that in Brief Candle in the Dark. I mean, the, I was first approached to do a television documentary after The Selfish Gene came out, and they wanted to do a program on The Selfish Gene, and I was too timid to do it, to do that. So John Maynard Smith did it instead, and he did it very well. And then 10 years later, I did a couple of BBC Horizon programs. I'd become less timid by then. And then more recently, I've done a number for Channel 4, uh, which um, I quite enjoyed doing them. Uh, I quite enjoyed having done them. I quite enjoy the, the end of the day's work. I find it a bit of a strain, actually, during the, during the day's work. Um, and, you know, you're sort of, in many ways, rightly or wrongly, or willingly or unwillingly, featured on TV as, as a public intellectual. Do you, do you like that term? I'm a bit bewildered by it, in a way, bemused by it. I don't think of myself as a public intellectual. I don't, I'm not ready to hold forth on any topic that anybody asks me about. I always refuse to go on sort of political talk shows where the panel gets asked topical questions of the day arising out of the day's news. I don't feel that I'm a pundit who's qualified to speak on such things. I'd much rather say, I'm sorry, I just don't know about that. I'm not educated in that. I haven't done the research, uh, which you can't do if you're a public intellectual. Uh, you, you mentioned a moment, a moment ago uh, John, Ma John Maynard Smith, and uh, you, you talk a lot about in this book about your heroes, you know, someone like him or, 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 or Stephen Jay Gould. Why was it important for you to, to talk about uh, those figures in your life. When you write an autobiography, you're, you are expected, I think, reasonably so, to talk about people you've known. I talk about people that I've known who are famous and people who are not famous. Uh, and I, I don't hold off talking about people who are famous, but people who have been influential to me, like John Maynard Smith, I would not include Stephen Jay Gould in that, by the way, but people like uh, John Maynard Smith or W.D. Hamilton, uh, who have been influential, P.B. Medower, um, I, I think it's perfectly right to talk about people who've influenced me, whether they're famous or not. One, one aspect uh, that you talk about and that you become known for is your ties, uh, which, which are, of course, uh, ha hand-painted by your wife. When, what was the first time, or when, when was the first time that started for you? Do you remember? Oh, goodness, I'm trying to remember that. I think she started painting silk scarves for women. Uh, great big, big, you know, silk scarves. 
and then she switched to ties. I forget what the first one was. Um, they're always animals. They, she always starts with white silk and paints animals on them. Um, one that I talk about in Brief Candle in the Dark is the warthog tie, which I wore to Buckingham Palace on the one occasion when I was invited to lunch by the Queen. And the Queen didn't like it because she said, <laughs> she said the animals were ugly. Uh, and I rather liked that. I thought it was rather admirable that the Queen doesn't just talk in cliches, but actually mm. says what she thinks. And uh, so I was rather pleased at that. And I, I said, when she said, why do you wear such ugly animals on your tie? I said, ma'am, if they are ugly, how much greater is the artistry to make it into such a beautiful tie? What was what was that like for you? Here, here, here you are, an Oxford scientist, and you get, and you get to go to, to meet the queen of your country. Well, I was quite amused by it, and it was a it's a thing she did every week, and she invited a, an eclectic mixture of guests. I mean, I I had a, a prima ballerina, I had the captain of the Australian rugby team, I had a leading uh, Muslim, Britain's leading Muslim, I had um, the, the director of the Royal Academy, um, and various other people, six corgis under the table. Um, it was a, it was a, a fun lunch. I enjoyed it. Uh, so given now that, that you've written your, your memoirs, what do you want your legacy to be, or, or, or how do you want people to remember you? I should like to be remembered as a scientist who was passionately keen on communicating science to as many people as possible because it is so wonderful. Well, I, w- I would definitely agree with that. You got, uh, you got me interested in science all over again when I, when I, when I read your books, um, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading both Appetite for Wonder and Brief Candle in the Dark. Richard Dawkins, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much indeed. All righty, ha- have a good one. Bye. Bye. And that was Richard Dawkins talking about his memoir, Brief Candle in the Dark, from 2015. And finally, from 2012, my interview with comedian, actor, and fellow podcaster, Mark Marin. Mark Marin, thanks for joining me. Yes, you're welcome, man. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so most people know you from from your your radio shows, your your, your podcasts, uh, and and your stand up. And I'm curious, a lot of a lot of comedians try to break into to film and television right away. How did you end up sort of bypassing that initially and and getting into the radio business? What are you kidding me? I, I look. I, this this all happened by you know desperation and default. I, I mean, I, I didn't bypass anything. I've been kicking around this business for twenty five years. I've had you know TV deals, pilot deals. I've been on Conan O'Brien and the talk shows like you know fifty, sixty times. I mean, I've been doing a lot of things for a lot of years, and this just happened to be the thing that clicked, and it just happened to be. You know, one of the you know the, the only thing that I have complete control over, and I do it out of my garage. So, you know, it was uh, a lot, a lot of starts and stops, and and failures and, and minor successes. But it was an evolution of things. It, it, I didn't, I didn't avoid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I I think I heard in 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 one of your interviews you said you never really wanted a career in show business; that you just wanted to be a comedian. What is what is the difference be- between those two two things for you? 
in my mind, I, you know, when I was younger, I, you know, I, I, did, I never had a plan, you know, to sort of how do I get on TV, how do I succeed in show business, what do I do? I just thought that if I was a great comedian, that those things would fall into place, that the idea of being a stand-up comedian, uh, to me, was something more elevated than just being an entertainer. You know, these guys had a point of view, they, they had a philosophy about life, they, they looked at the world around them, and, and they commented on it they had a freedom of mind and a you know and an ability to say whatever they wanted so you know i was gravitating towards the you know the 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 sort of broad and and um exciting you know you know stage of stand-up uh stand-up meant something else to me it meant uh, it meant expression in in the freest way that i'd ever seen uh and also you know the, the need to sort of make you know what you want to say sort of understandable and palatable, you know, poetically and humorously. I mean, that that was what was compelling to me. I, I didn't really understand that we were all entertainers until maybe a year ago, you know. Uh, how how would you say your, your podcast differs from what you did on the radio? Do you get more creative freedom um, in, in, in that aspect? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, the, you know, I was the, I did primarily political talk radio, and there was, you know, you were always sort of you couldn't you couldn't cuss. You you sort of had to honor a format. You were always moving towards uh, the breaks and and teasing the breaks, and you know, it was a standard radio model that was you know corporate owned, and and uh, you know there was certain there was a context, there was expectation, and there were rules. Uh, there are none of those that I don't decide uh, in doing a podcast. But clearly, th- th- there must be certain guidelines for yourself, or or certain lines that you you won't cross as as an interviewer. Do you d- does it change for you depending on who the guests are, or is it or is it set in stone saying I'm not going to go here? Well, I mean, yeah, out of respect, though, you know, I mean, it's, those are those are sort of uh, personal uh, judgments uh, depending on a guest. Yeah, I, I mean. It, it, you know, I'm not I'm not seeking controversy. I'm not out to make people uncomfortable. I just want to have a, you know an organic and authentic conversation, and hopefully provide a window into my guests. Uh, you know that 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 sort of exposes them for their the, who they are and their their, their humanity or, or or what have you. Like I'm looking to create sort of functioning audio portraits of people, and and also just you know and to do that through you know genuine conversation. So I, I mean, yeah. I, I just ride the line, you, you, you know, I'll, I'll get a feel for a conversation or, or a guest. And yeah, certainly when I enter some situations, you know, there are things that, you know, I don't feel necessary to talk about, even though they would be, you know, provocative. Uh, you know, it, it's just really, you got to pick your battles and, you know, what do you, you know, what do you want to do with the person when you're sitting there for an hour? Uh, but both in your standup and on your early radio career in Radio America, there's a lot of sort of, uh, anger and and do you find a lot of uh, humor and anger and anger and humor and just the two commingle th- throughout life? Well, I mean, I don't think I'm as angry as I used to be, and I think that you know, I was a you know, as a younger person, I you know, I had a lot of free floating anger. I mean, it's still there, but it, you know, some of that comedy was provocative and shock driven and and sort of confrontational. And, uh, you know, as I've sort of settled into myself a little bit, I'm a little more embracing. I'm still cranky and a bit neurotic and uh, in my head, but I, I just sort of talk about the existential challenges of, of that stuff as opposed to, you know, pointing a finger at the world and, 
talking about injustice or, or, or trying to uh, blow people's minds with the amount of intensity and anger I can generate. It's just not, I don't have that in me as much as I used to. And, and, my, and because of that, my comedy is a lot better. Uh, speaking of, of anger, how many people stop you on the street um, because of your angry promoter in, in Almost Famous? That's gotten you, uh, you know, a fair bit, and you, you, you start off your podcast with, with your line. How, how many people recognize you from, from, from that role? No, it, mo, mo, almost nobody knows me from that. You know, like certain, you know, people figure that out, uh, that that's where it comes from on the uh, podcast. You know, when they're sitting there watching Almost Famous, just by coincidence at home, and they're like, oh, my God, that's Marin. You know, it's, it's not, it was not a big enough role to be recognized on the street, certainly. But when people figure it out, I think it kind of blows their mind. Um, we, we touched on the, the television uh, subject a little bit earlier, and you have a, a new show premiering on IFC, uh, Marin. How did, how did that project um, come together? Well, you know, the podcast was getting popular, and I was doing, you know, bigger dates as a comic. And, you know, with a comic, you know, at any point in your life, you know, you can only sell your life. You know, every few years you can go pitch whatever version of your life that you're living as a show, and it just seems that with the momentum around the podcast and the uniqueness of the life I was living, you know, like, so basically what happened was, you know, I was living this life. I was interviewing, you know, large, big celebrities in my garage. My comedy career had sort of, you know, was driven into the ground, and I was sort of at odds when this all started. And, and that landscape uh, for a single camera scripted comedy was was compelling. And so I found a production company, Apostle, and, and they were in in, uh, in a relationship with Fox Studios. So we spent some money, and we shot a pilot presentation, and then we uh, took that out, took that out, and showed it to buyers. And IFC decided to do it. So that that's how that happened. How did how did the great Dennis Leary become involved as executive producer? Dennis Leary's production partner Jim Serpico, you know, uh, and he's also his manager have a production company called Apostle, and they were one of the uh, places that you know Jim had expressed interest in me, and uh, and in the in the show, and they ultimately ended up being the uh, the production entity. So it was mostly um, it was mostly Jim. But, uh, you know, Jim's partner is Dennis, and, you know, Dennis is uh, on one of the episodes of the show and has been, uh, certainly knew that it was going on and was very supportive. Uh, but uh, I primarily worked with his partner, Jim, uh, on this. Uh, I mean, obviously, we, we talked about Almost Famous, but th- this could be argued as sort of your, your first major uh, foray into acting, albeit you're, you're, you're playing a, a, a fictional version of yourself. How would you say something like this that is scripted and you're portraying a character um, is, is different than what you portray in, in your stand-up routine? I, you know, I try to make it as, uh, you know, as consistent as possible. You know, my journey as a stand-up, oddly, is, has been more to, uh, to be true to myself than to, uh, to, to entertain and fortunately, now everything's sort of coming together. So I, I try to. There's not there's not a, a big amount of difference between me and any sort of format I'm doing, other than you know the context of a stand-up show is you got to get laughs. You know the context of the podcast is I you know for me is just I have to be in the moment and and uh, thinking out loud. And with acting, um, I have to make sure that I can you know get these lines out of my mouth in, in as organic a way as possible. Uh, to honor that version of me. Now, I think that 
ultimately, hopefully if we get a second season, that, you, you know, we look at the first season and we figure out, you know, because I'm not, I, I haven't had a lot of experience acting, and, and but I have had a lifetime of, of experience being me. So I think that the challenge in the second season will be to sort of like, well, let's figure out what my strong suits are you know, in this version of myself. You know, the new, the new, the new frontier for me. Stand-up is not. You know, I've, had, I've sort of chiseled out who I am up there and on the, on the mic in the garage or on the radio. It's, uh, you know, I've sort of chiseled that out. But, you know, I, I'm looking forward to evolving uh, in that medium, and I hope I get that opportunity to do that. I think I did a pretty good job. Who would you say some of your uh, comedic heroes are? Uh, well, you know, Richard Pryor was a, is a big hero of mine. Uh, and, um, let's see, who else do I listen to? Woody Allen, of course, was, uh, you know, had an influence on me early on. You know, Buddy Hackett, Don Rickles, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of my friends. You know, uh, at some point in my life, I spent a lot of time as a kid in my early 20s with Sam Kennison, and that was sort of a lesson. Um... You know, I'm, I'm very impressed with some of my peers. Uh, you know, uh, it, it evolved. But I think the honesty that Pryor was capable of at his peak was, uh, and the vulnerability was a real, was a really uh, an amazing thing. And, you know, Bill Cosby, I sort of came into late. But, uh, you know, I, in the last few years, I watched Bill Cosby myself, and that, that really changed the way I looked at comedy. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of evolving with some of that stuff. And, you know, I go back and, you know, introduce myself to new stuff. Shelley Berman, uh, another person. Spalding Gray. Uh, you know, it, there's a lot. There's a lot. Uh, and and finally, your your home is often referred to as the Cat Ranch. Um, why uh, why do you have such an affinity for for cats? I, I don't know if it's an affinity. I just ended up with a lot of cats. You know, I, I rescued a bunch of cats uh, in, in Astoria, Queens, and a, and a, a couple of them ended up, uh, they were feral and they ended up out here. And then my ex-wife had bought a cat and then, you know, we bought another cat. So, and then there's a couple of stray cats around. It's, it's not an affinity. It was just sort of like, I, I found myself with a lot of cats. You know, right now I only have uh, two and there's a couple of strays outside, but my third cat disappeared and, you know, that's, you know, it's just the way it goes sometimes. Well, it, uh, Mark Marin is the host of WTF with Mark Marin, which you can find, which uh, has new episodes Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, Mark Marin, thanks so much for for joining me today, I and mean, we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Yeah, thank you, man. Good talk. Alrighty, cheers. Bye. From way, way, way back in 2012, that was my interview with Mark Marin. That does it for the Endeavor's 10th anniversary special. Uh, I can't believe it's been 10 years since this journey project started. Um, I definitely changed a lot since then, both personally and as an interviewer. I was 21 when I first went on the air, and I'm 31 now. Um, But yeah... I I never did this for anybody else other than me. Uh, You know, I always wanted to interview people that I was interested in, and I think I've done all right. Thank you to everybody who has supported the podcast over the years, and may there be another 10 in the future. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Bye for now.
artists like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>